Well, welcome to today's episode of Trees and Lines. I'm Phil Charlton. I think you're going to appreciate our guest, John Goodfellow. Uh, John's probably one of the uh, biggest influences on our industry over the last four decades uh, of anyone I know. John's fingerprints are everywhere. Some of the most recent work he has done has really helped us change the way we look at both transmission and distribution vegetation management. So I think you're going to enjoy today's conversation with John. Sit back and let's hear what he has to say about where the industry is and where it's headed. Mr. John Goodfellow, John's out on a boat in the Pacific Northwest. John, where uh, where are you joining us from exactly? Well, we're anchored in uh, Blind Bay on Shaw Island in the San Juan Islands. Okay, how long are you going to be on the boat for? About six weeks. Wow. Okay. Anchoring. This is short. I mean, normally we're gone for three or four months. So this is an abbreviated cruise. Okay. Takes remote work to an, an extreme. He's very remote some of the summer. Yeah. We got a guest stateroom that I have had turned into an office and um, my wife is also working. So the client doesn't need to know where I'm sitting in, <laughs> you know? Yeah, very true. And in the past, we've had to fly off the boat uh, about two or three times with the float plane fly down to SeaTac, get on a Delta jet and go wherever it is we're supposed to be. Is that right? Okay. You know, you're setting a new standard for how I may want to do this going forward. I have to talk to Craig about that. Phil, we've got things to talk about. John and I have been friends for how long has it been, John? 40 years? That's awesome. Something like yeah, that. Something yeah, something like that. So I, I've known you for that long. A lot of people haven't, maybe. So uh, how did you get into this industry? I needed a job. <laughs> uh, yeah. Economic That incentive. sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I graduated in 1978 from the State University of New York College of Environmental Science and Forestry. Um, and when I was a senior, um, they would have practitioners come through and give in the after, in the evenings you could go and what does a forester do and this and that well kevin mclaughlin who was at what was called power authority of new york has the now the new york power authority uh gave one of those talks i had no idea that utilities had foresters and you know, that's kind of interesting um and then, you know, I graduated and I needed, I needed a job. So I was putting out um, resumes and I actually had um, three choices. One was the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation. Um, and it was not a very well-paying job, but it was an interesting job. It was an entry job. One was with um, International Paper in Timber Lake up in the Adirondacks. And one was New York State Electric and Gas. Well, I was married at the time, and my wife um, was lacking credits to finish her BA degree in literature. And there is no college in Tupper Lake. But the NYSEG corporate office is across the street from SUNY Binghamton. So that's what I did. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. like it. And it turned out to be, I mean, I was, it turned out to be a really good career choice from my perspective. It was just so darn interesting because you can apply the, the principles are just sort of like inverse. So when we manage a transmission right away, we're trying to produce, um, you know, biomass, but not sawlocks, blackberries, blueberries, you know, <laughs> it's this, it's that kind of stuff. So yeah, that's how it happened. 
Nysik in the late seventies and eighties. Uh, you had some really good guys to work with. Oh yeah, yeah, they were good mentors. Dick Miter, for example, uh, Bob Malecki. Though that they, I learned a tremendous amount, and it was just it was a lot of fun. I mean, really, really was. So never look back. And I'm one of the few people. I don't think many people get hired from uh, university into a utility to do VM these days. I mean, most of them go through. Um, the farm system, whether it's, you know, it's the guys that, like you guys, the people that provide you know, uh, uh, technicians, field technicians at various levels. And then they get through the A, double A ball, triple A, and they maybe get into the utility. So. I, the one question I w- I've been really wanting to ask you is when you look back at your body of work, what do you think is your most contri- important contribution to to the veg space? Because you've done a lot of different things. Where do you, where are you most proud of in terms of like your impact in the space? I don't like questions like that. <laughs> Come I, don't on. Like, I don't like to pick one. I'd say there's two. Actually. Okay. One of the things that I had a lot of passion around was the idea of uh, less is more. So whether it is the concept of integrated vegetation management where you use compatible plants to suppress the uh, invasion uh, by the incompatibles or by properly pruning a tree, you reduce the growth response, um, you can really gain. And then the other idea is that um, forget the control mindset. We're managing systems. They're biological systems and they respond to stimulation. So that's one area. The other one is where I spent a, a lot. I think probably the most, uh, probably the most impactful because several colleagues have been involved in this first space I described. Um, and the second space is the electrical characteristics of trees, how trees actually cause interruptions that become outages, or how they don't. Um, and so I've done a great deal of work electrifying trees. He called the early studies the uh, firewood studies. The firewood studies. No, that's right. Yeah. yeah, because I was my my lab was in Redmond, Washington, but we had plant material coming in twenty two different species ultimately coming in from all over the country. Um, so they would come in in boxes. They were, I think they were like sixteen or eighteen inches long, and I you can only use them once because they're subjected to high voltages. But when they're done, they're firewood. So I had um, UPS deliver, I think it was like 100 specimens times 22 species. That gives you an idea as a couple quarts of firewood. So, John, out of that study, uh, really, and you've had a series since then. You've moved on to uh, step, and, step and touch potential. And uh, I've cited several of those in recent months. Um just curious, what do you think we learned as an industry that maybe the industry hasn't learned yet? You know, it takes so long for research to make it to the practitioner. I don't think we're, we collectively, the industry, fully comprehends this electrical conductivity of plant material. And there has been a great deal of focus on the potential to cause an interruption. But the majority of these contacts don't. And I'm not sure people understand the lower ends of the scale, if you will, the lower voltage gradients and the lower levels of current. So though that's there's just a lot more to be done in that space. Uh, and you're right. I mean, that the the bench studies in the lab led us to uh, 
probably the most significant study, if anybody's listening, it's available now because it's no longer protected by intellectual property rights by EPRI, but that was the uh, study where we basically energized uh, three different species of trees in the field, measured the voltage gradients down the stem, measured the currents through the fall pathway, put a, a, a surrogate climber at various positions in the crown of the tree, and measured the exposure they had to voltage and currents. And I, I, I just as this is a little teaser, if you will. So uh, Dr. John Ball and I are collaborating on a research grant right now, a Utility Arbors Research Fund grant, uh, to basically uh, look at the actual exposure that arborists have to uh, electrical uh, issues in trees while they're working aloft. So actually, I met John. Um, in his office in Brookings, uh, South Dakota, Dakota State University on Monday last week. We went over some more details. Um, he has about a 2000 uh, record database over about 20 years of electrical incidents with uh, Arborist. And I have the electrical um, characteristics of trees work. And we're combining those two bodies of work to uh, basically dispel myths as to what creates risk and also to focus attention on what truly does create risk to people working in and around trees. And the idea is that when that work is done, and it'll be done this fall, um, it will help inform development of the this C-133 Chapter 4 standard, which is the electrical safety standard for arborists. So that's a long answer, Phil. <laughs> you talk about myths. What are some of these myths? Like, what do you think the market gets wrong? What do you think people think is the cause and think are the core uh, kind of issues, but really you're like, no, that's not what you should be focusing on? Yeah, this is a memory test because um, it's probably more than 10 years ago. I wrote an article for TND Magazine and the sidebar was entitled The 10 Myths of uh, vegetation management. Here's the phrase, storm porn, right? So what we are all enamored awesome. with uh, are these pictures of the big tree tearing down the three-phase broken pole stuff on the ground. And, and so all of the tree risk assessment work that's been done for many years now focuses on whole tree failure. But I'll tell you that the literature confirms this, and my experience is was was consistent with the literature like eight out of ten interruptions caused by trees are not caused by whole tree failure they're caused by uh, structural failure within the crown of trees we have the concepts of tree risk assessment down we just don't apply them in the in the canopy we think about whole tree failure we forget that most of these outages are caused by um, well here's what they're caused by a rapid change in the juxtaposition of the branch and the conductor. So <clears throat> on a distribution system, trees do not cause interruptions by growing into contact with lines. I mean, that's a controversial statement, but I say it every time I give a talk on electricity. Um, what happens is the, uh, some of the, sometimes it's, this, it's, it's called a, uh, in growth or whatever, but it really isn't. The, the stems have grown past the conductor, and then at some point they deflect into the conductor because what you need is a significant diameter of the fault pathway to cause the interruption. What, what really is happening is the change 
a rapid change. So either the branch deflects or fails and comes into contact with two areas of unequal potential, potential is voltage, and um, it provides a fault pathway, or the conductor deflects and comes into contact with the tree. It's about change and rapid change. You've got to introduce that fault pathway quickly, not incrementally as a stemming elongates during the growing season. Yep. I find that interesting because we have an industry that has largely developed around the concept of cycle. And for most, the concept of cycle is based on when does incidental contact occur? Well, I think that's changing. You know, you and I have gone around this for a long time, long time. When we were back, did the project for EPRI, uh, application of reliability-centered maintenance to vegetation management. So um, in the maintenance paradigm, the highest order of maintenance is you perform maintenance based on condition and condition is monitored continuously. Now they can do that on a power transformer in a substation or they do that on an airplane or a nuclear power plant. That's where RCM RCM came from is aviation. But uh, mostly you can't have real-time monitoring. So then you can do monitoring um, where we quantify conditions incrementally over some period of time. And so, for example, um, uh, you can look at a recloser um, and see how many times it's cycled, or you can, uh, there's a couple applications of that, but we really, so far, hadn't been able to do that with VEG. So then you default to uh, fixed interval, um, because you can't determine based on sort of a condition when to maintain, so you default to a fixed time interval. And that presumes that uh, there's a relationship between time and lack of reliability. And then the the lowest form um, is run to failure. I mean, you basically accept an interruption, um, or or you put a uh, a backup. So you have a contingency. So I would suggest we run to failure on services on secondary, and sometimes we even do run to failure on single phase primary, but not very often. But what I see now, really glad to see this, is increasingly people are thinking about on-condition or condition-based maintenance. And you can make that work. So instead of a rigid schedule to perform the actual task, the tree work, you can have a rigid rigid schedule, if you want, to uh, have an inspection. So say you're traditionally on a four- or five-year cycle. Well, you might do a condition assessment at year three. And then you decide, do I need to do it in year four instead of year five? Am I going to be okay in year five? Or can I let it defer a little bit until year six? Um, we, With an understanding of how trees are causing, uh, creating risk and causing interruptions, right? So that's the whole idea of tree risk assessment, structural or physical, mechanical damage and electrical faults. With those understandings, you can actually start to... Um, characterize your risk. And on a distribution system, not so much in transmission, it's almost like zero risk tolerance. So you have to abate your risk. On a distribution system, you have to accept some level of risk. There's an allowable level of risk that remains after you perform maintenance. And by the way, actually right after maintenance, sometimes you pick up uh, a spike in the incident rate. You have a view of how things should be done right? You've built uh, intellectual capital and you have a, a point of view. Who do you think is the buyer 
of that point of view where it can actually be executed, where the practitioners follow your roadmap that you've created? Like, is it the PU? Does it start at a PUC level? Does it start at the utility level? Like, where can the adoption of your thinking, you know, have like a kind of a universal effect where now we're executing at the way you would want people to execute? Where does that start? No, I've always embraced the three, the three, um, entity model. There's an asset owner, an asset manager, and a service provider. And I think to your question, it's at the nexus of the owner and asset manager, because the owner has financial responsibility wanting things done right. And I'm convinced that the the less and more approach actually is most economic. The asset manager has the responsibility to actually put that into actionable um, requirements, a specification. Um, the service provider, service provider should just follow the rules. So it resides, I think, with the utility. I don't think it, it – um, I would not argue that the, the regulatory agency would have um, – they certainly have a role, but they don't have the expertise that a utility should have. Should is the operative word there. Um, the asset management group should have subject matter experts that can actually make um, make really informed decisions in terms of when to do work, what work to be done, how the work should be done, etc. So I've always believed in the reasonable person model, if you will, and that is that um, if you give reasonable people enough information, in other words, an understanding of why we do things, then what they do will be right. So there's a fair, a ferry going by right now. Can you? Oh my God. Look at that. There's the ferry. Look at that. I'm in an office and you're, you're in paradise. I've uh, had the chance to visit some utilities later, lately. And I, I think I agree with you that the conversation is changing from the fixed cycle you hear more and more talking about uh, that on-condition assessment is driving their program. When we got in this business, um, we had paper maps, and we pretty much did not do work on a circuit basis. You did it on a grid basis because you couldn't really manage the thing on a circuit. So you'd have a mile by a mile or whatever it would be, and that's what you'd assign you do the tree work, but you know, we know you're an electrical engineer. I didn't know that, but you, uh, you know, that if you don't do everything in the, in the, is protected by some overcurrent device, you really haven't addressed the issue very well. Well, we finally got to the point where we went to circuit based work because we had the tools. And now my gosh, the uh, spatial data availability and the whole idea of the technology, um, we can do work down, not at a circuit level. I would argue that the more sophisticated programs should be looking at breaking the circuit down into protection zones. Because what I was going to start to say is why would we assume that the risk is equally or uniformly distributed across the system? It's not. The risk varies by the type of infrastructure. We, we know three phase is, is much less tolerant uh, than single phase and voltage classes are important, but also the environment is different and the plant communities are different. And so 
I've always told my clients, if they're not, they should be looking at how the interruptions are spatially um, represented. Um, and they cluster. Every time you will find out that they cluster and they're going to cluster for a couple of reasons. It's because of the vulnerability infrastructure, the site to the, to the plant community incompatibility, or there's some sort of pathogen like uh, there's a cluster of ash trees and emerald ash whatever, hypoxylin canker and aspen. So that's that's where I think um, people are starting to get it, really. And when we changed, it took two editions of NESC, but when 218, Rule 218 changed to acknowledge incidental contact and to say it's impractical to eliminate all of it, um, that gave, I think, people uh, some comfort in embracing this idea of, of condition-based maintenance. I think it's a great, great trend, fully supportive. Today, people talk about digitization and, hey, like we rely on, you know, unmanned aerial aviation and mapping the grid. And then basically, you know, there's this discussion around human capital versus technology. Like, what is your, what are your thoughts? Like, you know, what is this, business industry look like in 10 years? And and are we going to be more reliant on technology and softwares and data? Or do you think there's still a huge human component? So I'm going to quote Alex Shigo, touch trees. I mean, you cannot be effective if you completely de- decouple yourself from the field. You've got to understand what um, conditions are really like, what's what's going on. So, for example, um, I've always advocated that that uh, you basically do an after incident review on interruptions, and you put your, you put your first line people out there, whether it's the general foreman or you put the the area or division foresters or whatever else, because until they see how trees are causing interruptions, they're not going to get it, and they're going to be stuck on the storm porn we mentioned, because that's the big big memorable pictures of chaos but what they'll find out pretty quickly is sometimes it's hard to find where the interruption actually occurred you really have to do some detective work and when you get to that level of understanding you have an appreciation of how risk is created and then you can be effective in managing the program but i would say that i'm uh, very, very optimistic about the uh, the the uh, the advances in technology I sometimes have described them as science projects because I think sometimes we're over over uh, extending an idea. Uh, case in point, I don't think we're there yet on um, some of the what, – what, well, I used to live in Redmond, Washington, and there was a phrase amongst the Microsofties. They called stuff vaporware, <laughs> where basically they it was just Microsoft, but the whole tech industry would come up with all these sexy ideas, and they really hadn't made it work yet. But so I think some of the stuff that's being sold right now, or sold or advocated, is is missing the point. And I'll give you an example. Um, there's a couple of vendors that are out there that are saying we can do predictive maintenance. Well, you know what they're looking at. They're looking at clearance, and at least one of them I've talked with said, you know, we can get near real-time clearance measurements. And I'm thinking, don't you realize the trees only grow for about six weeks to two months during the growing season, and the rest of the time 
they're not going to reduce the clearance unless the conductor moves. So um, I, I think, you know, at some point we'll have probably some algorithms that are reasonably predictive. But right now, the idea that you can fly LIDAR or satellite and use multispectral and come up with all this stuff, when really they're still stuck on clearance. And Phil's heard me say it before. Clearance is one step removed from reliability. It's not clearance. It's the how the trees are performing or lack, how they're failing, basically. So, so that's that. That would be a concern if we get sold down the road. Um, um, this is this is the greatest thing when it's really not directly related to to risk in terms of reliability. John, I know you can't list everybody, but uh, can you give us some examples of utilities you think uh, people should look to as examples of people doing it right? It depends on what we're talking about. So if we're talking about veg management on a transmission system, you know, top of the heap would be New York Power Authority. I mean, they just have totally embraced the IVM concepts. Um, First Energy would be another example for that, certainly. And and I'm just, I apologize to colleagues if I don't list you because there's a lot of really good things going on. It's like an Oscar speech. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, really. (laughs) Um, On the distribution side, uh, popped in my head just because I was in uh, the Carolinas a week or two ago, uh, spent some time with Ron Adams. The stuff that Duke Energy is doing is really innovative. There, um, I mentioned earlier the idea of managing on sub-circuit level protection zones they're they're working on that and they've they're applying um the the concept that i described earlier that uh, the risk isn't uniformly distributed it clusters and they're they're putting together some uh, i think it's just machine learning to try to figure out what are the variables that create risk now this is on their t system not their distribution system is it now I remember that. Um, I think uh, National Grid's doing some really good stuff with distribution. I mean, there's just a long list of, I think, good programs going forward. Uh, and I, I don't know. I'm going to stop there because I'm just going to not not remember enough people. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, I'm, let, me, let me put it this way. I am optimistic that the 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 trend is in the right direction that a lot of these companies are moving that way. And I think Phil said that earlier, they are, they are adopting these concepts. You know why? Cause they're, they're economic. Yeah. I've definitely seen that shift starting to take place. Before we wrap up, um, John, cause we could do this for, for hours. Um, and I really appreciate you, you carving out the time, especially while you're living this life. Um, no, I'm working. Come on. This is, I mean, I, after we're done with this, I'm reading some depositions. Okay, good. Uh, actually, that was what I was going to ask you. Let's delve into that a little. Well, how do you, yeah. How are you spending your time these days? Like, what are you up to? I I think there's like maybe three bodies of work. There is definitely the, um, expert witness work on electrical, um, incidents involving injuries and fatalities or wildfire starts. Um, but I also have an active portfolio of R&D. For example, I mentioned the project that John Ball and I were working on, and I've done two or three projects for EPRI in the last year. And I've got a couple coming up with them. And they're in the vegetation space. Some of them are technology-based. Some of them are uh, 
well, for example, I just did a big project with Phil's help, actually, uh, looking at the uh, environmental fate of the active ingredients and herbicides once applied to a transmission right away. How do they break down? Um, so, so that's the second body. And then the third body is um, – well, actually, there's four because I was going to say I do after-incident reviews. So if there's a big uh, gnarly storm of some sort or something like a big interruption, then I'll sometimes get involved in uh, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking that, which is interesting. But, you know, I'm, I, the fourth body I'm increasingly spending time on is – isn't actually generating a revenue, but I'm at a point in my career where I give back to the industry. So I spend a fair amount of time participating on industry standards groups. For example, uh, the Z133, I've just been asked to participate in uh, BMP on pruning, both the utility version and the ISA version. I wrote the utility tree risk assessment, BMP. I mean, it's uh, I'm spending bunch of time on stuff that um, doesn't make any money, but it's very satisfying professionally. So, John, you said one of your uh, spaces that you're working is the expert witness work or the legal side of things, just as general uh, observations. What can utilities be doing differently than many are doing to uh, reduce risk? Yeah, well, the risk we're talking about (coughs) – um, let's let's take two parts. So the electrical exposure to the public um, is one risk. The other risk is wildfire, of course. So the uh, electrical incidents, the injuries, fatalities uh, are all very, very sad situations. But I can also tell you almost always there's been several rules broken. So I think about this a lot. What would I, what would I tell? In fact, I get to do that in a deposition or with a client. What changes do you need to make in your program? And generally, there's nothing you could do to eliminate the guy that's going up in a tree with an aluminum extended pole, whacking fruit out of the tree, and he hits the primary. So I can't, I can't think of. I've done probably twenty or thirty of them now. I can't think of one where uh, the the vegetation management program um, was a serious contributor. It, it, there are always some contribution, right? The trees are there. The wires are there. And, uh, sometimes visually uh, because there's a tolerance, as we've discussed several times in this discussion, um, a tolerance for incidental contact. You cannot see the conductor as easily as you might. But, you know, these wires are bare. No one insulates, um, very rarely, rarely, right? We know about tree wire. Um, we rely on the dielectric strength of air, and we rely on people following the rules, you know, the minimum approach distance, et cetera. So there's not a lot that I think – there's no big gap to close um, on deficiencies of VM programs in general as it relates to public safety. In fact, that EPRI project I mentioned really focused extensively on the touch and step potential in aloft as well. The wildfire thing is another matter. I just think the industry is in an untenable position um, with an expectation apparently of zero risk. And I don't think you can get to zero risk. 
you know, we all know of examples, leave the company unnamed, but if you have over 100,000 miles of line and you have 5 million trees in your inventory that you you maintain and you actually assess every year, and then you consider a lot of these wildfires are from trees off the right away. Well, what are there? Five to 10 trees for every one that you're maintaining. So that 5 million becomes 25 to 50 million trees over 100,000 miles. Takes one tree. So that I don't know what to do about that. I, I think it's untenable. That's the word I would use. It's just it's something's going to have to give. So there's some great work going on um, in a couple areas. You know, the uh, the ability for near instantaneous high impedance fault detection, um, and uh, you can there's technology now where they can interrupt a fault before the conductor hits the ground. I mean, it's amazing stuff. Um, and then the the idea that uh, where where are the problems coming from? You know, we. On a well-maintained system, most of the interruptions are coming from trees outside the maintained corridor. I, mean, I mentioned the branch failures, right, and all that, but so also whole tree failures. I, I don't know what you do. Uh, the, the, the intentional de-energization is certainly uh, 100% successful on uh, re- eliminating the risk of a fire start because the, ener- the, the circuit's dead. But, I, you know, if there's a lot of smarter people than me working on this, a lot of the solutions are not going to be VM related. They're going to have, there's only a, you can only go so far with vegetation. And I think the California utilities in particular are going really far. I mean, they're not much more vegetation wise. They can do a broad brush statement, right? Because I, you know, I'm familiar with their programs. There's always the, the possibility that there's a there's a miss some somehow somewhere in the execution down the path process something doesn't work like intended but what they're trying to do is like i won't say over the top but it's so far beyond what um the industry in general does yet they're still having these fires so i i don't know phil i mean there's that's not a very positive response is it not a lot that we can, not more we can do, you know? <laughs> Job security, right? For those that are yeah, expert witnesses. It's kind of interesting that that statement, you know, not much more you can do. But in the first case of the electrical exposure injuries, there's not much more that they need to do. In the latter case, there's not much more they literally could do. I mean, there's just, they're running out of things they could do. So anyway. Sometime in the near future. When you when you dock, the three of us can can grab dinner and uh, kind of continue this conversation because I could I could ask you questions for hours. This was a, a, a fantastic chat. I really really enjoyed hearing your perspective on a variety of things. So thank you very much. Thanks for listening to another episode of Trees and Lines, sponsored by Iapetus Holdings, LLC. If you like the show, please give us a five-star rating on Apple or Spotify. If you have any questions or if you have ideas for future episodes, please contact us at treesandlines at iapetusllc.com.